And as I was considering, really, the, the culture of Crete on, on the island on which Titus was left by Paul to put in order the church, uh, I've noticed a number of similarities between the culture in Crete and our own in the West today. Uh, they had many different religions, ideologies, uh, worldviews that influenced people's thinking and, and, and how they live as we have today. But there is one big difference, and that is that at that time, the Christianity was still breaking into the culture. Uh, they were really pre-Christian uh, as, 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 as a culture where we are decidedly post-Christian. Uh, people are very dismissive of Christianity today. They claim it does not work and it, and it does not make a difference. And uh, we would, uh, of course, dispute that and say that that is intellectually dishonest and historically ignorant if you look at what uh, the gospel really and Christianity has uh, caused and produced throughout the ages in terms of just health care and education and, 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 and rights, human rights and all of that. Uh, but it is easy to understand why they say that because recent and historic moral failures or scandals in the church, the frequent uh, really failures of, of well-known pastors uh, into, into sin, the money-hungry ministries who pro proclaims a false gospel and make false claims in the name of Jesus and through that deceive and defraud many. And so we can understand why people have uh, doubts about the impact of the gospel on the lives of God's people. Uh, now, we cannot answer for others. But we can and we must answer for ourselves. And we better take a long, hard look in the mirror of God's Word to see if our reflection matches that of the Word of God. Uh, are we different to the world? Have we or are we being transformed? Has my faith in Christ moved me to be devoted to Him, dedicated to Him, be compelled by Him? For today's sermon, it can easily be seen as, as just a list of things that we have to do or have to pursue. And if that is your approach, then you will fail. You will dry up. Your faith will wither. This list of characteristics that we will cover today is how we ought to live. And this must flow from a heart deeply in love with Christ, who is devoted to Him. Anything short will cause us to wilt and wither under the demands. And so the question I have for us all to ask ourselves is, am I devoted to Christ? Am I dedicated to Him? Is He my all? Is He part of my life or is He my life? 
Is all of me found in Him? And He in all of me? Am I walking with Him? Am I conscious of pleasing Him in every aspect of my life? Because He loves us, loves me, loves you. And therefore we love Him. Not because we are trying to earn His love in some way. Our devotion, our dedication, our love for Jesus is really what defines our godliness. Our godliness will rise up to living and doing what we are commanded in our text today. And it is my prayer that godliness, our godliness would bear the fruit of transformation in word and deed so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say against us, as we read in Titus 2, verse 8. And as I said, this, today we are celebrating our ninth birthday as a church, and, and it is a good time for us to remind ourselves through this series of messages on building a godly church that we ought to mature in godliness as our witness to the world and as our worship of God. And two weeks ago, we looked at building a godly family from Psalm 127. And, and last week, we began this series, building a godly church, looking at promoting godliness. Uh, a godly church is a church that Christ Himself is building through the means of His gospel, His people, His, His word, His spirit, with the goal of saving others, and with the goal of discipling His people to godliness through the knowledge of the truth, through the teaching and preaching of the Bible, as we read in Titus 1 verse 1. For the faith of those chosen of God, this is Paul writing of why he, he was sent by God and by Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. And so a godly church must make godliness its goal. And a godly church must have godly elders to serve as guides to godliness. Elders who are above reproach as stewards of their own family, stewards within the church of the family of God, the house of God, and also stewards of the Word of God. And also, as a, a godly church is a church that guards against the influences of the ungodly, opposing what is false and defiling, yet at the same time seeking the very salvation of those who are blinded by their own deceit and held captive by their sin. And so a godly church is defined by the godliness of its people. And godliness, we said, is that deep love, that devotion, that dedication to Christ, causing us to abide in the Lord and seeking to please Him in everything. And that is what will produce a God or Christ-like character. And so we come to the second message here in Titus, entitled, Pursue Godliness. And if you are not there already, please turn to Titus chapter 2 and just follow along as I read that chapter. 
But as for you, speak the things that are, which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Why? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you, Lord, to your word. We thank you for the ministry of your word. We thank you for your spirit applying the truth of your word to our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would receive the knowledge of the truth today. Lord, that we would understand it, that we would believe it, and that we would live according to it. To your glory, Lord, and, to far, and for our benefit, we pray. Amen. Amen. And so here we find that we are instructed by, by really Paul instructing Titus to instruct the church in, in Crete to pursue godliness. And this was a church that was, that was hounded by false teachers, hampered by liars, by laziness, by those lusting for material gain, and hindered by those who followed the culture more than the Word of God. Uh, and here we find that, that they have to pursue godliness through the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And... Paul addresses a number of different groups within the church, both male and female, both young and old. And what he is saying really to Titus is this is how a Christian and therefore a church ought to be. Those within the church, this is who you ought to be. And the first group he addresses is older men. Uh, a godly church would stand in stark contrast, in holy contrast, I should say, to the world and will stand strong against the influences of false religion, of futile ideologies and foul cultural influences. If a church stands and grows in godliness and the older men ought to be, first of all, teaching Sound doctrine. Now, this command is actually directly addressed to Titus, but it would also apply to older men who would 
need to be trained and practiced in, in sound doctrine, teaching sound doctrine, for they, would be, they are the ones who would be chosen to become elders or leaders within the church. And so here it says, teach things fitting for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is, of course, healthy doctrine, and healthy doctrine is the truth. So the truth that leads to godliness. And so here he says, teach truth truthfully. That is rightly dividing the word of God and use it for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the people of God may be equipped for every good work. And this command is, is not merely a transition. This verse 1 is not merely a transition. It's taking the readers from chapter 1 and the instructions we have there to the practical application of sound doctrine beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2. But it is the same critical point that Paul made in Titus 1, verse 1. That Christian living, Christian ethics, building a godly church with members marked by godliness, emerges from, is based upon, grow out of the knowledge of the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is sound doctrine, sound preaching of sound doctrine that produces godliness in God's people. So teach sound doctrine. And don't for a moment think that anything else will be able to accomplish in God's people what God desires from His people. And so He wants them to be teaching sound doctrine so that older men would be temperate. Sound doctrine is what will grow men to be temperate. That is to be sober-minded. That is to be clear in their thinking, to be level-headed, not given to extremes. But have their minds shepherded by the Word of God. Older men needs to be careful and considerate in making good decisions. Biblically informed decisions. Deliberated decisions. Godly decisions. And sound doctrine is the operating system that will make that happen. A temperate man thinks deeply and rightly, and because he thinks biblically. Biblically about his God-given gifts, his God-given talents, abilities, his time, money, energy, and priorities. And so a temperate man is governed by his desire to please the Lord in everything and therefore submits every decision first to the Lord. A temperate man is not a fickle man. He is not an unstable man. He is not a man who asks wisdom of God and believes, believes that God has given him wisdom but then is faltering and, and falling and, and doubting that very word as James reminds us in James chapter 1, verse 5 and following. And so older men need to be temperate, need to be steadfast in their thinking, clear in their thinking, and they need to be dignified. Older men ought to conduct themselves in a respectful manner, with, with dignity. Men worthy of imitating, men of gravitas, of a weightiness to their character, men of sobriety, men who have a sense of seriousness 
of life. Not foolish and frivolous, but understanding the world, the condition of the world, and understanding the call of Christ, and understanding how urgent that is and how serious that is. Dignified men are faithful men, are serious men, are men of integrity, men worthy of respect. And they need to be sensible. Older men needs to be sensible. Really, the word is better translated self-controlled. It has, a, it has a very similar meaning to temperate, but the focus is on self-control. Older men ought to be self-controlled, knowing what the Lord desires, and then having the self-control to do what they know the Lord requires. And to exercise self-control in curbing his own desires so that he can conform to God's desires. That is a sensible man. That is a self-controlled man. And people without self-control, there can be no godliness. Without godliness or without self-control, the church looks like the world. Self-control is essential to godliness. Being devoted to Christ, walking with Him, pleasing Him, demands self-control. It demands a man disciplines himself so that he is pleasing to the Lord and not self-indulgent. Self-control is critical to godliness. It is critical to building a godly church a church that will be blameless and innocent, above reproach as children of God, shining as lights for Christ and His gospel in this perverse generation, as Philippians 2.15 reminds us. So really, every group in this passage, directly or indirectly, are exalted to self-control. Without self-control, there is no Godliness, without curbing your own desires to yield yourself to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, godliness will evade you. And so, all the men need to be temperate, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith. Again, sound in faith means they have to have a healthy faith, a strong faith. They must trust the Lord for the Word of God says He is trustworthy, and because of their age, they have no, or He has no doubt shown Himself to be faithful and to be trustworthy in everything. To be sound in faith is to have a faith informed by the Scriptures, and to have your faith integral to every aspect of your life. Paul wrote to the Roman church, when they were dealing with, with issues regarding conscience, and he was saying that, that whatever view you hold, uh, it, it has to be from faith, because if it's not from faith, it is sin. And so uh, an older man has to be sound in faith. And sound in faith means it has to be a personal faith. 
You cannot stand on the convictions of someone else. You will never stand on the convictions of someone else. It has to mean you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. You cannot say, this and that pastor said so, and therefore I am in that camp. You have to have it as your own conviction. And a sound faith is to have a tested faith. It is said that a faith untested is a faith untrusted. A faith untested is an unreliable faith because you're not sure whether that's going to give way. And so a, a tested faith is a man who stands on the truth, the stand on the truth of Christ and His Word in the face of troubles, in the face of trials and tribulations, to trust God even when every circumstances and every person around you says, God, hey, God is gone. He's not interested. He does not know. He does not care. He cannot help. Or they say to you that that's not what he said. That's not what he meant. Because they are influenced by the world and want to adapt the Word of God to the culture of the day. No, to, be a, to have a, a sound faith, a healthy faith, is a, is a, is a tested faith. A one who believes and has been tried and tested by opposition and persecution and yet maintain that belief. It has to be sound in love. And really the adjective sound here modify all three of these nouns. Sound in faith, sound in love and sound in perseverance. And all the men ought to be sound, they ought to be healthy in love. That is agape love. All the men ought to be to love God wholeheartedly, as Scripture tells us, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to, all the men need to love these fellow Christians sincerely, Romans 12, 9 reminds us. And he needs to love his neighbor purposefully, his lost neighbor purposefully, to reconcile them to God, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. And Jesus says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so sound or healthy love is really described for us by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. It is a love that is patient. It is a love that is kind. It is not self-focused. It is not self-indulgent. It is not self-serving. It is giving and forgiving. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endure all things. The love of God never fails. And that is the kind of love that needs to live in the heart of older men. Sound in faith, sound in love, and now sound in perseverance. This could mean perseverance under, under trials, meaning trying circumstances. But given the context, it probably refers to being steadfast in the face of opposition. As what happened in these Cretan churches, where with false teachers opposing sound doctrine, advocating false doctrine, and whether that would be pagan philosophy or the Jewish myths. An older man ought not to be easily and readily persuaded or turn away from what they have come to learn to be the truth. What they have come to learn 
about their own convictions. An older man ought to be tempered, steel, hardened in the furnace of opposition, unyielding, firm in the Lord, assured that what they have come to believe is indeed the truth. Older men ought to be unwavering, knowing and trusting that the knowledge of the truth, the hope of, uh, the hope of eternal life, is what God has promised, and God cannot lie. And therefore, we can stand on His promises. And so, just to recap, that older men ought to be teaching sound doctrine, ought to be temperate, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. And then, Paul instructs, Titus to, to shift his attention to older women, verses 2 to 5. And what makes a godly church is older women who are godly older women. And from these instructions, we see that there is a clear and important role for older godly women to play in the life of a godly church. In a culture that dismisses and diminishes this, this marvelous and wonderful, really, role that the Lord has for wives, for mothers, for women, we desperately need godly women to teach by word and by example what a godly woman looks like to the younger women in the church, to model that to them. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot wrote an article, Where are the Watts? The women of Titus 2. And she wrote that 25 years ago when she saw many in the church abandoning uh, their role in the church and in the house, being seduced by the culture and abandoning their God-given role and calling. And so Titus here encourages or is ought to encourage the women that they ought to be, first of all, reverent in all their behavior. That means they ought to be holy. They need to act fittingly. Uh, really, the, 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 the word has priestly overtones, uh, priestly overtones of reverence. And so an older woman ought to be holy in character, a priest-like in manner. That means she comes alongside and she's ever aware that God is present, God is all-knowing, God is all-seeing, and she comes alongside as a priest interceding for other younger women. And so it says here that Titus are to exhort them to teach, uh, to basically to use their time well in the days that they have. See, elder women, now that their children have left, have left the house and they have more time on their hands, Titus is, or Paul is encouraging them not to squander that time in gossiping and socializing, but to use it to minister to younger women, younger mothers, minister to them, disciple them, teach them, help them. And first of all, he says that they need to stop being a gossip. 
Stop spreading rumors. Don't be a slanderer. Don't pass on half-truths, unfounded claims. Don't trade in the, morse, the juicy morsels of hearsay. Don't stoke the fires of scandal. Don't meddle, don't pollute the mind of others with poisonous prattle. Literally, it says, don't be a devil. The devil is a liar and an accuser of the brethren. He's a slanderer. He's the slanderous one. That's what his name means. And the exhortation is here, don't be like him. Instead, speak truth, speak truth in love, speak truth that is edifying, that is gracious, as Ephesians 4.29 reminds us. So use your time well. Don't spend it in gossip and don't spend it in constantly socializing and being enslaved to much wine. So with that much time on your hands, don't constantly go around, family or friends rather, uh, socializing, gossiping and drinking. And it seems to me that drinking must have been a big problem in those days because literally every list that speaks about the qualifications of a leader speaks against being under the influence of, of wine or drink or get drunk. And certainly the, Crete, the Cretans considered heavy drinking to be a virtue. And so the exhortation is with with, with the time that you have now on your hand, you're having your kids out of the house, do not give in to this temptation to spend your time socializing, drinking, and gossiping. And so the exhortation is not to be under the influence of wine because that will affect your judgment. It will affect your behavior. Don't let that habit get a grip on you and begins to dominate you and control you. And of course, this is true of all people in the church. And so first of all, or rather, number four would be teaching what is good. So be reverent, stop gossiping, don't be addicted to much wine. Instead, teach what is good. It said, minister to younger women, godly young women. Teach them... And encourage them. And it is worth noting here that, that Titus was given the task to teach the older men and the younger men. And these men then in turn need to shepherd their own families. Husbands, you are responsible to teach your wife, to lead your wife spiritually. But there is a special role here for older women to minister to younger women. And of course, this is sound teaching based on sound doctrine, prudent teaching, for it removes the possible temptation of illicit attraction between Titus and a younger woman. And so it was a good moral fence back then, and it is a good moral fence today given how many pastors have fallen into a sexual sin. And so there's a special role for older women to minister, to disciple younger women. And the word here is, is, is for teaching, 
really conveys the idea of coming alongside a younger woman. It's, it's, it does not have the idea of a formal uh, teaching ministry per se, but more of a discipleship ministry. And so older women are to come alongside and teach the good lessons, their experience that they have gained by applying the Word of God to their own lives in their relationship with their husbands, in their relationship with their children, and so that they can train and disciple such good wisdom and such good practices to younger women in the church. And of course, it starts in the family. Mothers, teach your daughters what is good. And now Paul shifts really to the younger women. And first of all, the older women have to encourage the younger women to love their husbands. And obviously, they need encouragement to do that. They are to instruct them and train them how to do this. And really, this is the only place in the Bible where we find this encouragement to, to, to women or, or wives to love their husbands, apart from the general command of all people to love uh, as, as Christ has shown us and commands us. But many other scriptures command the husband to love their wives. But here, Titus wants to ensure that younger women needs that they need to know that their first priority under the Lordship of Christ is to love their husbands. Building a godly church requires women to love their own husbands. And in our culture today, that focus very much on the physical and emotional aspect of love, of falling in and falling out of love, depending on how you feel. Biblical love, agape love, though not excluding the emotional and physical aspects of love, is far more focused on the acting out in love. They need to act out, and, and the idea here is that older women need to teach the younger men, women how to love their husbands. They need to learn to love their husbands. Because sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's hard. What do you expect? There's two sinners living together in a sin-cursed world. And then it's not always sunshine and roses. And so teach them to learn to love their husbands. I love, I love the humor in, in Proverbs 14.4. Uh, Proverbs 14.4 says, Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. But much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. And when you apply that to marriage, you say, you can have your house neat and clean when you don't have an ox. But you may struggle. On the other hand, having an ox brings much benefit to you. But he tends to mess up the place a little bit. So learn to love your ox. Learn to love your husband. <laughs> and also learn to love your children. I mean, it's, it's surprising to me that that was a command that they have to learn 
that the older women have to teach the younger women how to love their children. Because loving children to mothers comes very naturally. And so what can they be taught? Well, I think they need to be taught to move from their natural affection for their children to cultivate a love that would promote godliness in their children. And so her natural love for her children needs to be harnessed to teach the children and lead them and show them who Christ is and to motivate their children to come to Christ, to know Christ, to please Christ. And so it means that they need to be taught how to set standards and how to enforce those standards. It means that they need to be taught how to teach and reprove and correct and discipline and train in righteousness. Proverbs 29, 15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. So older women ought to teach younger women to love their children, teach them with agape love, that is a love that seeks the best for their children, and that includes instruction and training and discipline. And then... Younger women need to be sensible. And we, as I said, we've, we've seen this before. They need to be self-controlled. Sound in mind and judgment with the emphasis on self-control. Teach them self-control. Because there are many things that a young woman can be, or would like to be rather doing. But they need to put God's priorities and a family's responsibilities first. And therefore they need to learn how to exercise a balance uh, and wisdom in their own lives to discipline themselves to do the things that God asks of them to do. And that's best taught through the example of all the women. And they need to be pure. Young women, their sensible behavior, their self-controlled behavior is really linked to their purity. They need to be taught how to be discreet, how to be chaste, how to be modest. And the focus here is on being faithful to the Lord, who finds the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit far more precious and attractive than that of braided hair, wearing of jewelry, and pretty dresses, as First Peter 3, verse 3 and 4 tells us. And so fidelity to the Lord and fidelity to her husband is what the Lord desires. An older woman plays this incredible, important role in younger women to guide them in their choices and their decisions. Anything from clothing to how they act. Today's world, the fashion is very revealing, very seductive, very immodest. There's often more outside than inside the dress. And so all the women plays this important role of helping, guiding women to live a life of purity. To guard off unwanted attention and attraction. And they need to help and learn younger women to have a right view of themselves. To know that they are precious in the eyes of the Lord. That they need to not give themselves to the first man who wins their heart, 
but save themselves for the man who will treasure their hearts, who will treasure them as individuals and not as someone to conquer. And so they need to be taught how to be pure. And younger women ought to be homemakers. Taught to be homemakers. Busy at home, literally. Uh, young women must be taught that their primary base of operation is their home. Their primary place of ministry is in their home. And a godly woman who seeks to please God do so above pleasing herself. And therefore she is focused on her God-giving calling, which is her family and her home. And therefore she is diligent, she is hardworking in her home and not distracted by outside pursuits and responsibilities. She also refuses to accept the modern deception that for a wife and a mother, to be a homemaker would be a waste of her God-given talents, abilities, and responsibilities. She understands and embraces that the greatest influence she will ever have, the greatest fulfillment she will ever experience, the greatest blessing and freedom she will ever attain to in this life and in this world is to follow God's plan and purpose for her which is why He created her and why He saved her. Of course, Proverbs 31 tells us of the many activities uh, open to, to women and, how, and what they can be involved in. But her primary base, her primary ministry is to be her family and her home. And they know to be taught how to be kind. Again, this, this word can be linked to the previous... Um, Section to homemaker, it literally means to be good. Uh, so it could be be a good homemaker, or it could be just be kind. Be kind to all those in your home, both family and slaves in those days. And the essence really is to imitate Christ, to be kind to all, good to all, gracious and generous, gentle and compassionate. And they need to be taught to do that. They need to learn to be kind. And they need to learn to be submissive to their own husbands. Really, submissiveness is, is the willingness of placing yourself willingly under the headship, under the leadership of another. It is following the direction and the leading of another. It is, it is more of an attitude than an action. But it is an attitude that will determine one's action. It does not imply inferiority. It does not imply lesser value or dignity or worth. Because even in the Godhead, we have submission present. In God's plan of redemption, God the Son submits Himself to God the Father in order to accomplish salvation or redemption. And then God the Spirit submits Himself to God the Father and the Son in applying that accomplished redemption, regenerating the believer to faith. But all three are equally God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
They are all equally worthy of worship. But yet they have different roles within God's plan of redemption. And they willingly submit to one another in that plan. And likewise, God has ordained different roles in marriage. With husband and wife being equal in status, equal in worth, equal as heirs of grace, equal in Christ, yet fulfilling different roles. The husband is to lead the wife, and the wife is to follow her husband. And of course, that goes against our sinful nature. And therefore, it needs to be learned, it needs to be modeled, it needs to be taught by older women to younger women. And it says here that a wife has to submit to her own husband. You're not required to submit to any man, but to your own husband. And so a godly young woman will seek to please the Lord and honor His Word. And when you do that, then of course God's Word stands. But if you do not, then you dishonor the Word of God. One who claims to believe the Word of God and claims to live by the Word of God and then dishonors the Word of God, scoffs at the Word of God, scorns the truth, brings a reproach on the Word of God. And so, having dealt with all the men, all the women, younger women, now he turns his attention to younger men. Younger men is really those 12 years and older. And likewise, in a similar manner, you, Titus, must urge, exhort, instruct these younger men regarding qualities of godliness. And the first quality, the one we saw before in the previous groups, is to be self-controlled. To be disciplined in your devotion to Christ, to be dedicated to the Word of God, to the knowledge of the truth. So discipline yourself in protecting your mind and your conscience. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23 tells us. What you expose yourself to has an influence on you. It influences your thinking. It retrains your conscience. And people, that happens whether you want to ha it happen or not. And ultimately, if you continue to expose yourself to that which is contrary to the word of truth, then sooner or later you're going to start to change in your thinking and your conscience will be recalibrated. And we are bombarded daily with false messages and false teaching, advocating and propagating really anti-God values, anti-Christ virtues, calling what is good evil and evil good, light darkness and darkness light. And this relentless mantra from the media today, if you do not guard your heart, suddenly and inconceivably, a few years from now, you will approve of the things which now abhor you because you have been retrained by what you expose yourself to. What was maybe inconceivable a few years ago 
is now enshrined in law. And you're not outraged about it anymore. So be self-controlled. Discipline yourself. Ensure that the knowledge of the truth inform your mind and your thinking. It guides your mind and your thinking and determines, therefore, your choices and actions. Don't be like the false teachers whose minds are defiled and consciences are seared. And they approve of lives that are driven by lust, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the prideful boast of life who has no qualms in defying God, deceiving others, being liars, indulgent in every evil desire, as we saw in chapter 1. And so, Paul was urging Titus, as he's urging us today, men of GBF, be self-disciplined, denying self to defer to God, denying self to prefer God, denying self to concur with God that His Word is the truth. Encourage one another not to lean on our own understanding, but to trust in the Lord. And so godly young men, godly men needs to be sensible, need to be self-controlled. And they need to be good examples, of examples of good deeds, rather. They need to be role models of those who are doing good, those active in doing good works, to have a reputation of being helpful, caring, considerate. And there are, of course, many good works that we can be engaged in. But I think here we're speaking specifically of the good works that are born out of sound doctrine, born out of the knowledge of the truth. Ephesians 2, 8, verse 10 tells us that, that we have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's a gift from God, so that no man would boast. And then he goes on and says, we are His workmanship, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which He has prepared beforehand for us to, work, to walk in. So that is the good works that we need to be engaged in. That is the good works that you need to be an example of or example in. And so each one of you have been given natural abilities and giftedness, but also spiritual abilities and giftedness. And God requires you to exercise those for the edification of the church. To be diligent in good works. Using your giftedness to advance His church, His gospel. So be an example of good works as a witness of the grace of God in your own life. And be an example of good works so that others would experience the grace of God in their lives. And be pure in doctrine. To be an example of purity in doctrine. Uncorrupted, unpolluted, undiluted doctrine, that is. Be, be an example of one who practices what he preaches. A man of character, a man of integrity. A man who has not compromised his beliefs. Who has not conformed to this world. 
but holding firm to the truth, to live according to it, and thus be worthy of respect, to be dignified, as it says here. Be an example of a man others respect. To be serious about the knowledge of the truth. To not make light of it, not joke around with it. It's not like the young pastor who dressed himself up in a rabbit bunny suit preaching the cross on Easter. That's inappropriate. How can you take serious the message of the cross when the preacher stands in a bunny suit? Be serious. Be men of dignity. Be sound in speech, which means speak truth and speak truth truthfully, accurately. Let your speech be above reproach, blameless. Let your words be true. Let not from the same fountain come fresh and bitter water, as James 3.11 warns us. Don't be guilty of blessing God and cursing men with the same lips. Don't be empty talkers. That is like the false teachers whose words and whose promises do not mean anything because it's of no substance and of no value. It is not reliable because it's not the truth. So make sure your speech is sound in passing on the knowledge of the truth with accuracy, not your own ideas. And make sure your speech is sound in really all areas. That you would be known as one who speaks truth. Because if you don't, then one moment when you speak the gospel and you have a a reputation of not being truthful, why would they believe this from you, from your lips? And that's why Paul says, he urged Titus well, to encourage the young men to be truthful so that they would not open themselves up for accusations. But instead, that they would shame their opponents. Shame they're those in opposition because they can find nothing bad to say about you. Shame them in that they have to make up things, bad things to say about you. And shame them in that even those things they make up will be shown to be untrue. So be men sound in faith. Paul transitions then and urges Titus to, to basically preach to those or to teach those who are slaves, who don't have the freedoms of other men. And for the sake of time, I'm going to pass over these few verses because I want to, I don't want us to end without talking about why we ought to be this way. Why we ought to be as we've just heard these instructions. And so, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, and gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people from his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And really what he's saying, why were you... You are all to be like this. Why do you all to be like this? Because of who Christ is. And because of what He has done. And because of what He desires or what He wants. And first of all, who He is. He is the grace of God that appeared. That speaks of Christ being incarnate. God incarnate. He took on flesh to become a man. To live among men. Pleasing to God, perfect in obedience, perfect in love, perfect in every way. And then he, he was perfect in obedience to the point of death on the cross. Out of love for God the Father and love for the lost. Love for those who are alienated from God, under His righteous wrath, helpless and hopeless. But God, being rich in mercy and abounding in grace, showed grace to man and offered him salvation. Salvation from his wrath, forgiveness for his sins, the presence of his Holy Spirit, the adoption as his children, life in abundance both now and forevermore, if they would turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. Not based on any merit, not based on any good work, not based on the will of the flesh, of blood, of man, but based on the grace of God. And He is our blessed hope. Those who receive Christ Jesus, who have come to trust in Him for their salvation and for their forgiveness and their adoption in Him and Him alone, to them... He is the blessed hope, the hope of His return, the hope of transforming us, the hope of eternal life, a life without sin, without suffering, without death, a life in the presence of God, unrestricted, unimpeded by our own fallen nature and flesh. We ought to walk this way because of who He is. He is Jesus, the Savior of His people. Christ, the King. Emmanuel, God with us. And for what He has done. He gave Himself a sacrifice, gave His life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. He redeemed us not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood. First Peter 1, 18. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. He purifies us. Hebrews 1.3 He washed us and cleansed us through the shedding of His blood, cleansing our consciences from sin and dead works. He made us His own. We are now His chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him 
who have called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And be godly because this is what He wants. He wants us to deny ungodliness. That means stop living as if He is not real. Stop living as if He is not with us. As if He did not come, as if He did not die, as if He was not buried and raised to life again on the third day, and that if He is not coming again. Stop living that way. Stop denying the ungodly behavior or attitude. Stop desiring worldly things when He and all that He is, is ours in Him. Pursue godliness. Live sensibly, there's that word again, self-controlled life, righteous lives, godly lives, aware of this, of, rather aware of His presence and eager for His will. And that is to do good works, the works of the Father He has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. That is to be truth speakers. That is to be peacemakers. That is to be disciple-makers. That is to be ambassadors for Christ, seeking the reconciliation of the lost with God the Father. That is to be salt and light. That is to be workers of righteousness, lovers of Christ and lovers of others. It is to be godly. And I will end with what I started. That unless this is your heart, because of Him... Because of your love for Him, because of your devotion to Him, that is why we ought to be what He calls us to be, which is godly. And so, speak, exhort, and reprove these things with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. And Lord, what you want your people to be, and that is to be godly. That your church would be a godly church, made up of godly people. And so, Lord, as we heard these instructions, I pray that the love of Christ would compel us. Not our love for Him, but Your love for us, Lord, would move us, would make us want to be what we ought to be as instructed to us today in Your Word. And so help us, Father, by Your mercy, by Your grace, by Your Spirit, by Your Word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.